In today's episode, Lynn answers two listener questions. First, a mom discovers her 15-year-old has been thinking of drinking to manage her stress. What are the conversations parents should be having with their teens around stress, substance abuse, and peer pressure? And another mom raised by an anxious parent is trying to break the cycle with her daughters. She asks Lynn how to know when the voices inside her head are just the generational patterns of worry, or are they her intuition telling her there's danger? How does anxiety filter the decisions we make and the information we receive? Welcome to Fluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about worry and other big feelings in parenting. I'm your co-host, Robin. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a Fluster Clucks, and I'm here to help you find your way. Okay, Lynn, I have a listener question for you. Okay. Our 15-year-old was recently caught in possession of a nip of alcohol at school and has been put on disciplinary probation. She told us she was given it by someone at school and considered drinking it, but then decided not to. We believe her when she tells us she hasn't been drinking, but are concerned that her level of stress and anxiety are causing her to consider poor choices. We're seeking therapy to help with addressing both her anxiety and stress, but also to rebuild trust and family communication. Do you have any suggestions on how to handle poor decisions that adolescents can sometimes make when they're feeling overwhelmed? And how can we both hold her accountable for her poor choice and also support her growth through this experience? How do you talk to teenagers about substance misuse in a way that they can understand? She's told us that some of her friends have been drinking, which is concerning because she presents it in a normalizing way. It's high school, she shrugs. That's what people do. Okay, so this is such a good question because it brings up a few really important issues, which I'm going to go through. The first thing I think it would be helpful if we make an assumption that this was hers and that she was planning to drink it, and maybe it's something that her peers are doing. But I think the whole idea that like I was just holding it for somebody else maybe sort of gets in the way of you really addressing some of the things that you want to address with her, particularly poor choices, peer pressure. And then also, as you bring up that really important part of how do we handle stress? How do we handle feeling overwhelmed? So let's talk about that last one first. When you have a child who is choosing to do something to help manage their stress and their feeling of being overwhelmed, And what they're choosing to do is, by all accounts, something unhealthy. So maybe they're choosing to drink or smoke pot. Maybe they're choosing to not do their schoolwork, to procrastinate and to watch YouTube videos all the time because they're overwhelmed with what they have to do academically. Sometimes, you know, we have kids that are practicing self-harm. They're cutting or doing something else like that, that they're trying to deal with their stress and the anxiety. So I think that you are on the right track parent of really being able to say, if your daughter is saying to you, I wanted to drink this because I feel stressed and I feel anxious, then you want to listen to her. You want to pay attention to the fact that she doesn't know yet and she needs to develop some better strategies for handling stress being overwhelmed. So I think that's a good way to look at this. That was her go-to strategy. And if that's her go-to strategy, then we want to give her some better strategies 
And it also gives you the opportunity, and I hope, and I think from this question, it sounds like you're getting therapy as a family as well, is that you want to make sure that the culture of your family is it one that is supporting stress and feeling overwhelmed. So it gives you an opportunity to talk to her openly about that and see if there's any changes that you want to make in the way that achievement or expectations or things are put forth. So that's the first thing that I would pay attention to, and it sounds like you are, so that's great. How do the parents manage their own stress and what are they modeling? Exactly. We always have to pay attention to the messages that we're giving that are both explicit and implicit. You've heard me say before, like, as long as you're doing your best, or parents say to me, you know, we don't have high expectations of our kids as long as we know they're trying their best and they get all A's and B's. And I think, oh, okay, well, hmm, right? So that's a little narrow. So being able to have a conversation with that and to make sure, and this is where the family therapy setting can really help, make sure that your daughter feels like she can really express that to you in an open way. So that's the first thing I would pay attention to, and I think that's great. The other thing that is really important in this story, the other element of this is peer pressure. If she's saying she's holding it for somebody else, again, I would assume that it was hers. But if this is something that her peers are doing, if this is something that has become, as you say, normalized in her group, which I think it probably has, right? This is what everybody does. That is really happening with pot these days, right? Everybody smokes pot. It's no big deal, mom. Everybody does it. That you really want to talk to her about how do you handle pressure from other people to do things that she doesn't want to do. So, what's interesting about what she's saying is that she's hitting on two different things. One is she's saying, I'm doing this to handle my own internal state of being really stressed out and really overwhelmed. And I'm also doing this because, hey, this is what everybody else does. And this is a way that I fit in and my friends were going to try it. So I wanted to try it. So you've got these two things going on, one internally and one externally. It is really, really helpful to talk directly to a 15-year-old about how you respond when somebody or a group of your peers are doing something that you're not comfortable with. And it really helps to just give kids that language to give them some practice, to give them that script of being able to say, oh, no, thanks, that's just not my thing. Or, you know, I really, I've talked to my parents about this and I've thought about this a lot myself, and that's just something that I'm not interested in trying. Give them the language and maybe it's just very something, something very simple, like, oh, no, thanks. Like, just have her practice saying that. It's really helpful also sometimes for kids to be able to put it off on their parents. So say now you have an opportunity, mom, your 15-year-old has been caught and she's gotten in trouble. And so if she says to you, I really don't want to do this, and I really feel like it was some peer pressure to do it, now help her be able to fashion a comeback that says, you know what? I got caught. I'm on disciplinary probation. My parents were really upset. I'm really disappointed that this all happened, I'm really working to stay away from that. She's got a built-in excuse now that she's been caught. So she may just need some support and some help in coming up with that language. Yeah, I just think that the teenager response should always be as few words as possible. That's right. So it's like, I got busted, I'm on thin ice, no thanks. Yes, perfect. I got busted. 
you guys, you know what happened to me. I'm not going to go near that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really okay. And I tell teenagers this, it's really okay to sort of make your parents out to be like, oh, you know what? My parents are going to kill me if I got caught. That's really okay when you're trying to protect yourself from this. I do take the stance with teenagers that whatever you have to do to not engage in this behavior, it's okay. You don't have to be truthful. You don't have to be genuine. You don't have to be explanatory. Whatever limit you have to put up. I had one student that would say that all her friends drank. She would go to parties. There was always drinking. And she said, you know what? I'm allergic to alcohol. (laughs) And I don't know if her friends believed her, but that was the way that she got out of it. I think it's totally fine as a 15-year-old. So that's, that's something too. And I think it leads to a conversation too about how we handle a lot of the social aspects of teenagerhood. You know, we know that there's something called risky shift, something called groupthink, where kids will do things even if they feel individually that it's not a part of who they are, that it goes against their values, that in a group, people, particularly adolescents, will shift to more risky behavior because of the peer pressure. And so we really have to coach kids through that because it can happen in all sorts of ways, not just with having alcohol, but other drugs, with sex, with cheating, with all of the things that really become social phenomenons. What does that coaching sound like? It sounds like being very upfront with them and telling them, hey, you know what? There's this thing called risky shift. And it's a phenomenon that happens. We know it. It's been studied a ton. And that when you are with a group of people, you are more likely to get swept up and to make decisions so that you fit in, so that you feel a part of the group. And sometimes you're not even making the decision because you don't want to stand out. It actually feels more okay when the group is doing it. So in very small ways, that's what happens when kids tease each other, tease other kids, like in second and third grade, when you get their sort of one mean girl that kind of get the girls around her and they tease another kid. So it happens very, very commonly. So you talk to them about it and you say, this is something you're going to feel pulled in that direction. And so let's talk about how you can push back against that. And again, give them the language, do some role playing. Say, this is what I might say. I love that advice, Robin, like short and sweet. No, thank you. That's not my thing. It's really a lot of what we talk about when we're helping kids with bullying because we know that it's really hard to be the person that stands up, right? I mean, that's that scene at the end of the first Harry Potter book when Neville gets the points. You, you probably remember that, right? Right. Well, you had to confront your friends, which is harder than confronting your enemies. Exactly. Right? It's such a wonderful scene. And so I think that we can use that kind of stuff. We can talk to kids about that. We can look for examples when somebody is able to stand up either for themselves or for other people, because a lot of this, a lot of what's in this question really comes down to peer pressure. And I do wonder, actually, if I had to pick what would I address in this, I certainly would, ad- would address the stress and anxiety that she's talking about, but I would really focus on how do you make decisions in the context of your peers, in the context of social stuff? I really think that's important to talk about. But wouldn't it also be relevant to have a, a life conversation of you will have stress and anxiety issues throughout your life? Mm-hmm. How do you respond to that without being self-destructive? Right. How do we respond to it? I mean, that's the thing too, is what's the alcohol culture in the family as well? 
is alcohol consumed as a, it's five o'clock, I had a crap day, time to pop open Mm -hmm. a beer? Mm -hmm. Or what are the ways that as a family, you're all modeling non-destructive stress management? That's right. You know, and again, this is, we bring up this question, it's such a concrete example of a 15-year-old getting caught with a nip of alcohol and getting in trouble, but it really does lead to that larger question. I don't know if there are other siblings in this family, if she's the oldest, if she's the youngest, if there are kids of different ages, but it really opens the door for everyone in the family to talk about my favorite thing, emotional management. Picture the thing that you've always wanted to learn, and now picture that you're learning it from the person who's literally the best in the world at it. It's fantastic, and that's what you get with Masterclass. I recently listened to Matthew Walker's talk on sleep and the importance of consistency with sleep. I loved Bobby Brown's Masterclass, gave me all these tips about putting on makeup because, you know, I'm in front of a camera sometimes and I want to look good, and Bobby was such a big help. So this year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass actually helps you do it. Like I actually put on makeup the way that Bobby Brown taught me how to put on makeup. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass actually helps you do it. Masterclass offers over 180 instructors. So whether you want to master negotiation with Chris Voss, think like a boss with Martha Stewart, or maybe you want to learn how to just make your makeup look better with Bobby Brown or sleep better with Matthew Walker, with Masterclass, you get unlimited access to intimate one-on-one classes with the world's best. I loved it. There are over 200 classes to pick from. New classes are added every single month, like a class that talks about your gut health. So many interesting things to learn. So every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's absolutely no risk. Right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash Fluster. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash fluster. Masterclass.com slash fluster. You know, when you're listening to a song on the radio and you just have this feeling that the song was written about you or that it was someone that you love trying to say something to you, well, now imagine the power to gift that same incredible feeling to someone you love with an original song that actually is about them and about your relationship and that Songfinch writes just for you. Songfinch lets you create an original radio quality song inspired by your own life and the people that you love. It's completely unique, it's personal, and it lasts forever. I had the pleasure of creating a family song with Songfinch about our summer celebrations that we have every year. I knew it was going to make everybody cry, and it certainly did. 
I got to be honest, I was even crying, giving all of the information and helping personalize my song with the writer that I chose. He absolutely delivered a beautiful acoustic song that captured exactly what I was looking for. And it was so fun to share with the family. So whether your song is for Father's Day, an upcoming graduation, a wedding or an anniversary, or even just a gift to show your loved one how much you care, start your song now to lock in one of Songfinch's top artists. Don't waste another dollar on more stuff. It only takes four to seven days, but that song will last forever. For a limited time, Songfinch is letting our listeners upload their song to Spotify for free so you and the lucky person or people can listen to it anywhere, anytime. So go to songfinch.com slash fluster and start your song. After you purchase, you'll be prompted to add Spotify streaming for your original song for free, a $50 value. Again, the URL is songfinch.com slash Fluster. Don't forget to share your song with us too in our Facebook group, songfinch.com slash fluster. It's alcohol, sure, and alcohol has that social thing to it. Pot has that social thing to it. But how do you manage when things are feeling stressful? If we look at what kids are doing, and if we look at their level of self-medication and self-harm, in the context of dealing with stress, dealing with anxiety, dealing with feeling overwhelmed. They are using stimulants. They are getting prescription drugs from other kids at pretty significant rates. They're taking Adderall. They're smoking pot alone. One of the things that was interesting a few years ago when they were looking at the behavior of teenagers, that a lot of these teenagers were doing these things not in a social context, but were also doing it by themselves because they were having difficulty just managing their own stress or their own emotional state. So it does, it totally opens the door to it. And you sort of foreshadowed the last thing that I wanted to talk about with this question, Robin, is how does the family talk about stress and what are the parents modeling about substance use? I've worked with so many families where the parents are really concerned that their kids are drinking alcohol or they find out that their kid is smoking pot. And then when we talk about it, the kids will say, well, it's what you do. And it's that same messaging, right? On Facebook, the the mommy wine culture of sort of like, oh, I have to drink. Oh my gosh, my kids make me want to drink. It's everywhere. It's so pervasive. You should really pay attention to it. What is the message that your child is getting about substance use? And how do you justify it? How do you model it? How do you talk about other people in the family that have struggled with this? Is there open conversation about the real dangers of addiction? The earlier you do it, the better. And really being able to talk openly about kids with this. And you shouldn't, you know, I mean, this is a 15-year-old, but you can start talking to kids about this when they're eight, when they're nine, when they're 10 particularly if this is something that's going on in your family. It's really just about really addressing it very directly and very openly. How do we manage our life, all of the things that happen, without using substances? Have you ever wished you could work with Lynn to talk about your family? Here's your chance. We're excited to announce the second Fluster Clucks Parenting Retreat at Canyon Ranch in the Berkshires. 
This two-night retreat will feature small group workshops with me and Lynn, a private consultation with Lynn, and all of the amenities of Canyon Ranch, a luxury wellness destination. It's not just a spa. It's so much fun. So much fun. Everything that I teach is really about emotional management, handling worry when it shows up, but it is so focused on prevention. These are skills that every family needs to know so that we can get ahead of this thing and you can have wonderful joy and connection with your kids. In my life experience, Lynn, I wonder if you had the same plus then your expertise as a practitioner. I mean, there are some kids in high school who might drink once in a while, but still it doesn't impact anything else in their life and their responsibilities and their studies. Mm -hmm. But the kids who had problems, they did come from households where the parents also had it. But sometimes it was households where the parents didn't drink at all, but the kids had no autonomy whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So it was like from a very controlling household. Mm -hmm. Do you still see that in your practice? There's often this dichotomy that we're looking at. And do we have parents that are really modeling alcohol use as a way to cope? And then also, do we have parents that don't drink at all, but then there's actually no discussion at all about why they don't drink? And so it's very closed off. And I'm looking for that sweet spot in the middle where there's open discussion about it, that it's not modeling irresponsible use. And it's also not modeling, like you say, that control, that rigidity. We know that parental control is one of the fast tracks into anxiety. There are some kids who respond to parental control by then themselves becoming very controlled in a rigid way. And then we've got the other side of it where that parental control is reacted to with rebellion. And with not really an understanding about how to manage emotionally, because there hasn't been discussions about it. There hasn't been openness about it. So that's where I see it happening, is that there's a family that's really rigid, and we're not going to talk about this, and the kids don't really get any information or coaching. So then they get out into the world, and they're going to they're gonna rebel. They just don't know how to handle it. I often say, if you don't talk to your kids about their emotions and how to handle them, it's like giving a 14-year-old a Lamborghini. He can probably figure out how to drive it, but he's not going to drive it well, and it's not going to end well. My parents don't drink for a variety of reasons. I think I've mentioned that before. We have been very open with our boys about addiction on both sides of our family, as it is in most families, as I've said a gazillion times. I remember that this boy named Chris broke my heart, and I was friends with his older sister. And I went over to the house of the boy and my friend, and the mom knew what was going on, of course, and she was very sweet, but they were a family that drank a lot. And when I got there, I had a broken heart. She probably felt badly because it was her son that broke my heart. I was 17 years old, and when I walked in the door, she offered me a glass of wine. And I remember even back then thinking like, that's not what I need. And also thinking like, this is weird. My mom probably wouldn't want her to offer me a glass of wine. That's the difference in sort of the way that things were handled in that family. When you were upset, here, let me offer you a glass of wine to help you with your 17-year-old broken heart. It's very interesting to me. Did you take the wine? I did not. Uh Uh-huh. I didn't. It felt so weird to me that the mom, and it wasn't like at that point that I wasn't drinking sometimes, because I drank for a short period of time, and I believe that that was during the drinking time. 
it seems so weird to me. It seems so awkward to me for so many reasons, you know, that I would accept that wine. But even back then, I remember thinking like, this is weird that this mom is offering me wine. A very good friend of mine who has very English parents. Mm -hmm. So they would offer you a cup of tea. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a cup of tea is the answer to everything, which is a slightly better habit to model for your kids. So she still drinks a lot of tea. Well, it was like when my kids were at the lovely little Montessori school that they went to when they were little, and a little drink of water was the solution to all of your hurts. Whether they be emotional or physical, somebody would run and get you a little cup of water. It was so cute. It'll be interesting as we resume a chapter of more normal life after COVID. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I'm very sensitive about is for kids Like my daughter is a freshman in high school. And so she was pretty much remote all year because of Mm -hmm. her school situation. It could go so many different ways of when people are back together in person Mm -hmm. that you'd just have to say this absolutely had an impact on a high school experience. How will kids socialize? And there will be this kind of frenzy. Mm -hmm. Let's pack all these experiences into one or two years instead of four. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to be an issue to think about and to talk about with our kids. Yeah. Well, it's sort of this binging mentality, right? And I think that that's why it's so important. And I've I've been hearing this and seeing this, and I think it's really important, is that we have to be careful when we're talking to our kids as we're sort of going back into social contact, particularly with our teenagers, is that we have to be careful about talking about what they've missed out on and what they've lost. Because I think that's a setup for that binging mentality. We've got to pack it all in. I think that we have to be careful not to say, like, you missed out on so much. We've got to make up for lost time. We've got to really make sure that we squeeze as much high schoolness out of these last two years. I think that can set some kids up for exactly what you're talking about. Sort of to wrap this one up, the really important things that you want to deal with if you've got a a child in this situation. First of all, Make sure that your eyes are wide open about what they're doing and not doing, because it's very common for kids to say, no, it wasn't me, or no, I didn't do it. So so make sure you have your eyes wide open about that. Make sure that you're addressing the issues of emotional management and stress and anxiety, and if they're engaging in behaviors or strategies that are meant to help them, but you know that long-term are a bad choice, and then just be really as early as possible. So for those of you who are listening to this who don't have teenagers yet, as early as possible, pay attention to the language and the modeling in your family around substance use and what it is it that you're showing your kids. How is it that you're showing them that we take in a substance in order to deal with the difficulties of life? That's a pattern that you want to pay attention to, particularly if it was modeled for you and your family, which it's modeled in many, many families. Yeah, that's how I would sort of wrap that up. When um, your kids are younger too, one of the things I feel like you've talked about this before, but when we want to model our own stress management options, it's almost playful with kids. Like my son is nine. I can imagine having a playful conversation about this of I'm really wound up because I had a very stressful work day. What should I do right now? Should I drink a bottle of wine by myself? Mm -hmm. Should I buy a bunch of stuff on Amazon and have some boxes arrive? Should I spend money that I don't actually have? Mm -hmm. Should I take a bubble bath 
or should I try and get three hugs from everybody? Mm-hmm. Or should I call a friend or like kind of make common where it's like, these are all the ways people try and make themselves Mm -hmm. feel better. But early on, outline what those are so that they already have an inner voice telling them what the good choices are when they're feeling stressed. Right. And I think it just goes back to what we have talked about, I think many times is articulating what you're doing so that your children can see it because they can't read our minds. And remember, when little kids are watching us, they don't know what's going on inside of us and they think we've got it all together and our modeling is so powerful. I know I've talked about this if I've had a long day that I might say, I'm really tired right now or I'm really exhausted, so I just need a few minutes to not talk or to say, I'm really stressed out about this, you guys. I'm going to go for a 10-minute walk or I'm going to go for a half an hour walk and when I come back, then I want hugs from everybody. You just say it out loud and you let them know what you're doing. I remember when I used to get up and go teach spinning classes and sometimes my boys were little and they were like, don't go, don't go. And I would say, this is really important for me. I really love to do this. I'll be back or you can come with me and go into the childcare if you want to at the gym. I'll be back. But this is something that I do because it really helps me feel better and I really enjoy it. So I'm going to go do this for me and I'll be back in a little while. And I used to say that out loud so that they understood they could put the pieces together to me taking care of myself. And even if you say, I'm feeling a little blue today, so I know I'm calling a friend and going out with them for dinner. Yeah. All of these opportunities. And I think that what this parent is looking for is how do they go from here with this? I think you're on the right track. I think it opens up a lot of good conversations about getting through the stressors of life and how we manage it and what it looks like and how do we make decisions? How do we make choices? It's just that emotional management, relationship management. How do we help our kids understand this and talk about it? I really like this next question. It's a thoughtful, philosophical approach that I'm interested in hearing what your practical advice is. Okay. I'm a woman who struggles with anxiety. For background, my own mom has struggled with very significant anxiety throughout her life and as her daughter felt it daily. My father was the chill dad who was always the voice of reason. If it were up to my mom, we wouldn't have been allowed to do anything. But thankfully, my dad would step in at times to overrule. Now I have three daughters of my own, 14, 12, and 9, and in spite of my anxiety, I think I do a pretty good job shielding them from it and listening to my dad's voice in my head when making parenting decisions. My question, though, is how does an anxious mom know the difference between worry and intuition? I've almost trained myself not to listen to my worry voice in my head, but by doing that, am I going to miss that gut feeling that is actually warning me of real danger? Can an anxious person trust their instincts? And if so, how do you recommend I vet them to discern the difference between worry and actual pending doom? (laughs) I laugh at pending doom. (laughs) This was written by an anxious mom. (laughs) Yeah, right. And it was funny because as you're reading that, I'm thinking, oh, okay, so intuition and anxiety. How do I tell the difference between worry and when I'm making a great decision? Or how do I tell the difference between worry and something that would be really fun, but it's no, how do I tell the difference between worry and pending doom? So you're not giving (laughs) yourself too many good choices there. So this is a really interesting question. 
And I think what it comes down to is, for one, is that we have to define intuition a little bit because that means a lot of things for different people. My intuition, like, is it my spidey sense? Is it my guardian angel? Like, people have a lot of different definitions of intuition. What immediately, as I'm listening to this question, I'm reminded of um, the book Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. So some of you may have read it. It was one of his first big books. And it's really interesting because it is about decision-making and it's how we decide or how we figure out what to do and whether or not it should be an analytical, intellectual process or whether or not it should be based on sort of that intuition or that gut feeling. You know, I've said before, you got to be careful if you're an anxious person, if you're listening to your gut and your gut is anxious, that might not be the best place to put your awareness. So that said, there's a large body of research that really talks about how we process information and how we come to conclusions. And when you are anxious, there are really two things that happen on a pretty consistent basis. One is that we tend to pay a lot of attention to threat-related information. So as you're taking in information and as you're making decisions, threat-related information grabs your attention much more. And then the other way that you tend to take in information and make decisions if you're anxious is there's a real bias toward negatively interpreting something that's ambiguous or something that's ambivalent. And I talk about this, there's good research about how when kids of anxious parents are shown a ambiguous picture, so it might be just a picture of a person eating an ice cream cone or a dog carrying a stick, the story is more anxious when the anxious parent is involved in creating the story about the picture. And one of the things we know about being raised by an anxious parent is that you perceive the world as a more dangerous place. So all of that is to say is that this mom says, I was raised by a really, really anxious parent. She says she felt it daily. So that means that her ability to assess situations and process things is going to lean toward more of the doom, is going to lean toward more of danger. And she's doing a really good job of recognizing that and really trying to discern, is this my anxiety pushing me toward this avoidance? Oh gosh, I shouldn't let them do that. Or is she allowing herself to step back and allow her daughters to do more? She's doing a really good job with that. The problem is, is that when we're trying to discern between, is this anxiety or is this my intuition? Her intuition is going to be impacted by this long history of anxiety. Robin and I travel a lot. And part of traveling is that you learn that you have to compromise, right? So maybe you're not going to get the best seat on the plane. Well, you know where you shouldn't compromise? You shouldn't compromise with your health care. When it comes to your health, there's no compromising, everybody. Don't go back to that one doctor who didn't really pay attention to you, who rushed you through your appointments. Check out ZocDoc. This is the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, insurance. So literally no compromises here. 
ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Once you find the doc you want, you can book them immediately. You don't have to wait. You don't have to be on hold with a receptionist. These doctors all have verified reviews from real patients. So the typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is just between 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even score same-day appointments. I have two young adult sons. They are always needing something, right? We've had broken elbows. We've had tonsils. We've had this. We've had that. If I were a young person, if I were a parent trying to help my young person find a doctor, this is what I would use. So Go to ZocDoc.com slash Fluster and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash Fluster. ZocDoc.com slash Fluster. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. So let me go back to Blink again with Malcolm Gladwell. What Malcolm Gladwell, the thesis of this book is that when you are making a decision that feels very intuitive, it really is based on years and years of experience. So a decision that you feel like you come to in the blink of an eye, a decision that you come to that feels almost unconscious or automatic is really based on an accumulation of experience. So this mom has to think, well, what's been my accumulation of experience? And are you letting yourself with your three daughters accumulate experience that isn't based on your mom's anxious view of the world? Now, based on what you're saying, it sounds like, yes, in some ways, you are allowing yourself to make decisions not based on your anxious history. You're really allowing yourself with the help of your dad to create a different narrative about what your kids can do compared to your mom's. But the interesting, again, the most interesting part of this question is what's the difference between worry and my intuition that says there's actual pending doom? What I'd really like you to pay attention to is what's the difference between worry and this other intuition that says this is really okay that my kids can do that. You want to pay attention to that side of your intuition too, because you are strongly biased in your assessment of information toward negativity, toward doom, toward danger. So being able to allow yourself to sort of think about how you feel, because intuition is really based on a feeling, 
and make sure that you are giving yourself an opportunity to almost create this other category of intuition that is really being able to trust yourself and to trust your kids. The thing that Malcolm Gladwell says, which I think is a really great quote, is he said, the truth is that for the most important decisions, there can be no certainty. And that's just exactly true. So we're always looking, if you're anxious, you're always looking for certainty. So if I make this decision based on anxiety, does that get me certainty? If I make this decision based on intuition, does that get me certainty? And the answer, which is very displeasing to the worried parent is nope. We had a cousin who used to come and visit us in the summer and her mom is a little nutty and she started calling my cousin her daughter, and saying, I need you to come home. I need you to come home. I just have this feeling something bad is going to happen. I just have this premonition. I just have this intuition that if you stay there, something horrible is going to happen. And she left. And we were all like, what? (laughs) Now, nothing happened. But the problem is that when you act on this intuition if it's a predicting doom and gloom and then nothing happens, then that supports that your intuition was correct. So I'm sure my aunt said, see, it was really good you came home because I prevented something bad from happening. And that's the negative bias that happens is that when you listen to your worry or you listen to the sense that you have that something bad might happen, you act upon that and then nothing bad happens, then it gets reinforced. That's a pretty dangerous cycle. What I'm saying is based on a a long history of bias in your interpretation of data, I don't know that there's really that much of a difference between somebody who's really anxious and then this, like as if this intuition is something really different. I don't think that your intuition is completely separate from all of the ways you've been trained to perceive the world as a dangerous place. I don't think that they're two different categories. As you describe this, an anxious person's capable of manufacturing these moments. Yeah, because they, they're looking at life through the pending doom lens. People come up with definitions of this stuff all the time. But one thing, when people talk about anxiety, they say, well, anxiety is about the future. And anxiety is about worrying about what hasn't happened yet. But if you have an intuition, that's in the moment, and that's about the present. And so that's how you know the difference. I think that's kind of a false distinction. I don't think people come up with these definitions trying to say, well, this is anxiety and worry, and this is intuition. I'm not sure that that's the case. Remember is that intuition can be both positive or negative based on your experience. So again, you know, when, when Malcolm Gladwell is talking about decision-making, one of the things that that he's really saying is that if you make what what looks to be or what appears to be an intuitive decision that it is usually based on a lot of experience sometimes a lot of education a lot of life experience so that you can come to this conclusion and i'm making little air quotes right now you can come to this conclusion unconsciously or you can come to this conclusion automatically Or in a blink of an eye. In a blink of an eye. When you're looking at what appear to be intuitive decisions or appear to be decisions that are based on just like this little piece of information, once you get down to it and you look at how they made that decision, 
they made it based on so much experience and so much knowledge, and they were able to get rid of all the extraneous information. There's this great stuff that's done by the Gottmans, who are couples therapists, and they predict whether or not a marriage is going to survive based on talking to a couple for about 30 seconds. So somebody might say, oh, they're so intuitive. They can just talk to this couple for 30 seconds and then predict with stunning accuracy what's going to happen to that relationship. The reason they can do this is that they've been gathering data on relationships for decades, and there are a few signs that they see consistently over and over and over again that predict a relationship is going to survive or not. And they can watch a couple for a short period of time and see if those patterns show up. It's not like they're psychic. It's not like they're watching these people and, you know, picking up on the energy or picking up on the unspoken signs. They're picking up on very concrete behaviors that couples do. That they've learned. That they've learned from years and years and years of gathering the data. You know, it's just really interesting stuff of how people make decisions. Does that mean that anxious families may also have a lot more superstition in their culture? Yeah. So when you're anxious, remember, you're always looking for certainty. So you're always trying to figure out what's the secret to making things go well. And so if you can figure out, like, if we do this, that makes things go well. If they're always looking for external signs or things like, was it the lucky socks? Was it this? Was it that? They're always looking to try and make connections that make them feel more certain about the way the world works. And, you know, as we know, life is really ambiguous and it's really uncertain. And unfortunately, a lot of it is really unpredictable. But when you're anxious and you're seeking certainty, then you're going to try and find these things that help you predict, help you feel secure, help you make sure that things are going to go the way you want them to go. It's hard to say, well, you know, it's, it's a kind of a crapshoot. People don't like that. Human beings don't like that. We don't like that at all. We're consistently trying to figure out how can we predict. To sort of tie this up for this mom asking this question is that I want you to trust the experience that you've had as a mom of three girls who's doing a good job as a mom, making decisions, allowing your kids to take reasonable risk, and just be aware of the fact that there is a very well-trained part of you that goes catastrophic. And it is going to be hard for you to differentiate between those things, but allow your intuition sometimes to be positive instead of always, you know, the two, like I said, the two choices you give yourself, like, is this my anxiety where I'm, you know, imagining this terrible thing, or is this my intuition, which is predicting pending doom? Actual pending doom. Yeah, right. Actual. <laughs> right. She says the difference you'd worry in actual pending doom. Let your experience count in a positive way. And don't let this generational worry get in there and be focused so much on the bad things that could happen. Trust yourself, but trust yourself in a positive and a confident way rather than always looking looking for the doom. Do you know the, it's not really a superstition, well, I guess it is, but like if a pigeon poops on you in Italy, you've basically just won the luck lottery. It's like really? a positive sign. Oh, that's just to make people feel better that they got shit on. Exactly. <laughs> exactly.
Exactly. Well, okay. But I've seen that happen firsthand when I've been in Italy with my Italian friends and they're all like, hooray. Yeah. Well, that is so funny because in Italy, the pigeon poops on you and everybody's hooray. And then the saying that we have in our family, which is the Irish Catholic family is when somebody is doing something and they're just in this situation and they won't get out of it and they're just kind of in that victim role, then we say, well, why don't you just go to the park and let the pigeon shit on you? (laughs) (laughs) Which is a very different set of it, isn't it? So join the Facebook group so that you can ask Lynn your question on an upcoming episode. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Fluster Clucks. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent with sometimes hilarious and always thought provoking experts and friends at Mindful Mama. We know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast.